Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone from Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. Today is day two of our member drive, and I spent uh, day one uh, driving down to St. Paul and back. It's a roughly two and a half hour drive each way to make an appearance on Minnesota Public Radio. Uh, when I got back, I checked the member stats. Uh, we are one short of 1,700. We're on our way to 2,000 this week. Uh, kind of a slow start today. Uh, or yesterday. Uh, so I'm going to ask you today to take a moment, go to strongtowns.org, click on join the movement, become a member. Uh, seriously, $5 a month. Uh, if you want to do a yearly membership, it's $25. This is not, we're, we're not asking for a huge commitment from you. Uh, we're just asking you to, to do a little bit, to be part of the Strong Towns movement, to help us share this message with others. Uh, I want to get to at least the mid 1700s, getting closer to 1800 by uh, by Wednesday. So uh, don't leave me hanging. I, I need you. I really need you to go and, and take care of this today. You put it off yesterday. You didn't do it yesterday when I asked you. Please take a moment and and do it today. I told you on Tuesday that we would chat about the problem that we're trying to solve. Uh, and, and I, I mentioned at the end of the podcast yesterday that the, the problem we're trying to solve, there's a little bit of hubris involved, not hubris involved in the problem, uh, hubris in how we've identified the problem. Uh, I've, I've said many times, and I, I think I've probably picked on the complete streets people a little bit too much here lately. Uh, but, but I think it's a good, it's a, it's a, it's a good example to take a look at because I think when you define a problem very uh, narrowly, it is quite easy to come up with policies. It's quite easy to come up with actions. And I think some of the most effective things that have ever been done are, are heuristic like that. They are, here's the problem, let's try to solve it. I, I think one of the things that I struggle with is, you know, I look at, for example, the Complete Streets Movement, and I think, yes. Uh, trying to address you know the fact that our built environment is despotic for anyone who's not in a vehicle, uh, we should design places for more than just cars, and so you know I see the evolution of this. Uh, we try to teach people how to do complete streets. Uh, we try to convince people that we should do complete streets, and then what happens is that ultimately the engineering profession figures out. You know, we can make a lot more money building complete streets than uh, than regular streets. And so all of a sudden it becomes institutionalized and the values of the engineering profession kind of take over. And as I've said many times, uh, a complete street is an environment that accommodates people in a realm dominated by automobiles. We, we haven't really shifted our values at all. We're just spending a lot more money now uh, to provide in most places, you know, marginal improvements. Uh, we're not building a walking, biking culture. We're not building strong towns. Um, but we are, you know, in some places making some changes. Has complete streets been a waste? No. But this is not the problem we're trying to solve, right? We're trying to solve a, a much bigger problem, a much more complex problem. This is when I say there's a lot of hubris involved. Because uh, I, I think if you step back and look at our resources, and especially when we started on this journey, if you step back and you look at uh, the the you know what we had at hand, uh, you never would have set out on this journey to to tackle this huge problem that we're trying to address. Uh, you never would have. Um, but that's not how 
this all came about. I'm going to give you a little bit of the backstory of how Strong Towns came about and, and how we came to identify the problem that we're trying to address. Most of you know I'm a civil engineer. I graduated from the University of Minnesota in 1995. And uh, I, I graduated, I want to say on a Thursday and on a Friday, I was up on a pre-construction conference in a little city called Nevis, Minnesota, where I would spend the next, I don't know, five, six months uh, inspecting a sewer system getting installed and being, you know, one of the one of the one of the project engineers up there on the job. My first job right out of school. And I was incredibly enthusiastic. Um, I embraced it. I loved the work. Uh, I did in my engineering days, just uh, all the municipal kind of engineering you would do. So I, I designed streets and I designed sidewalks and I designed drainage systems and I designed sewer and water systems. And I did a lot of field work and a lot of field inspection. Uh, when you're a young engineer, you have to basically work as an apprentice for four years before you can get your license. And I was in that period of time and I kind of got exposed to a, a whole bunch of different things. It was a great process and I, I learned a lot. I loved it. And I have to say, I really believed in my heart in what I was doing. Um, I, I, I believed in my heart that the things that I was helping to design and helping to build was making, and, and I don't want to, I'm going to say this, <laughs> um, I'm not trying to uh, make this at all political, but I, I, I really thought I was making America great. Um, that I was building a strong America, that I was making the country stronger and better off, and that the things that I was helping to bring about was going to lead to that. I, I, was a, I was a believer. There were some times as I got towards the end of, I, I worked as an engineer for a little over five years before I, I left and went back to graduate school. I, I think the last year, year and a half, uh, I, I started to grow a little bit disillusioned. I, I like to say I had my midlife crisis at age 26, <laughs> which is probably, probably true. That's probably when I had my midlife crisis. Um, I was an, an early uh, achiever, right? I was an overachiever. So I was ahead of the game. Uh, I, I, I started to ask questions that no one was really able to answer for me. They gave me answers. The answers were mostly well, Chuck, that's just the way we do things, right? That's the, that's the way things have done. Why, why do you ask so many questions, Chuck? Um, just go do your job. And it seemed more and more to me like my job was to just do mindless things. Um, two examples come to mind. Uh, I remember once, and this actually was part of the inspiration for my conversation with an engineer video. I remember being out on a project uh, where we were putting a, a road through. It was, there, was a, there was a little row a little path that served like a dozen homes. And uh, my engineering company had been uh, retained to improve, and I use air quotes there, improve the road. And so we were going out in this little trail and we were making this just really wide roadway. I mean, basically putting a highway through the woods where there was this little path before. And none of the people along there wanted it. I mean, none of them wanted it. And you know, they thought it was, it was horrible. It was out of context. People would go speeding through their neighborhood. Now we're going to tear down all these trees. Nobody really wanted it. Um, 
And to top it all off, we were actually assessing them. Like they were going to have to pay for this thing that they didn't want. And my job was to go out and explain to them why their concerns uh, were, um, I'm not going to say didn't matter. Um, they mattered. They were just uninformed and, you know, they didn't understand. This is what needed to be done for safety. This is what needed to be done for progress. This is how we had to do things. And so if they wanted the city to plow their road, if they wanted the city to, uh, you know, maintain their road, they were going to have to bring it up to essentially a quasi highway standard, even though it it wasn't called for. And they were going to have to pay for that, you know, just smile and and go on. I, I remember thinking like how ludicrous this was. And my job was to convince them otherwise. I remember just sitting there going, what, what in the heck am I doing? There was, a, there was another project, and I could go on. I mean, there's many, many, but there's two that come to mind. That, that was the one where I remember getting in my car and driving back to the office going, what, what am I doing with my life? The other one, uh, there was a big box store that came to town. And my, um, my job was to represent the big box store. And I had a good friend of mine at the, uh, the firm at the time. He was doing the environmental work. I was doing the engineer kind of site design work. And our job was to represent this big box store through their permitting process and get, help them get the permits. And then we were going to design and, and you know, help them build this store. And one of the big problems that they had, they had looked at numerous sites. I had recommended a couple sites to them that were essentially, you know, in the vernacular, they were shovel ready sites. They were ready to go. They were more expensive, um, but you could walk in and build like tomorrow on them. They picked out a site that needed all kinds of work. And the biggest problem with this is it had a, a whole bunch of wetlands on it. And we were going to have to, to build the store they wanted in the way they wanted to. We were going to have to fill these wetlands. Not allowed, not allowed by the county regulation, not allowed by uh, you know, the clean water act, you just, you couldn't do this. And actually knowing the hydrology of this place, there's a good reason why you couldn't do it here. Specifically, there was flooding, you know, essentially downstream from this site. And we were not going to be able to mitigate any of this on site. This, this was a bad, this was a bad project. And we told the representative of the big box company, we told them, you know, you can't do this here. And, uh, you know, we, we went through and, and tried to convince them to go to their places. And basically the feedback we got is I, I'm paying you guys go get the permit for me. Like your job is to go get it. I'm paying you go do it. And I remember sitting in the car with my friend, uh, Derek, we sat there and we kind of promised ourselves like, this is like, okay, we'll go in there and we'll make the ask, um, you know, and we'll essentially, make the case, but we're not going to argue it. Like, you know, we'll, we'll make the case once. And then, you know, when they reject it and they push back, we're not going to get in like a, a back and forth. We're just going to accept this is the way, you know, you can't do this. Right. We, we knew we were going to get rejected. So we went in, uh, I opened up, made the argument. Uh, Derek followed, he made his points. Um, the board said, yep, sounds good to us. Bam approved. <laughs> we walked out of there, uh, with this permit that we we never thought we were going to get. We never thought we should get. I remember just being disillusioned by this. Like, what is this? Is this what my career is going to be? I, I'm, I'm building really kind of bad stuff and I'm not really helping people the way that I thought I was going to be. I, I'm not really, I think making the country great, making the country stronger. 
There are, there are a bunch of other ones that financially didn't make any sense either, but those are the two that kind of jumped out at me. I had an opportunity to uh, leave and go to graduate school. And I, I took that opportunity. I went back to the University of Minnesota. I went to the Humphrey Institute and got a master's in, in urban and regional planning. And while I was at school, I got phone calls from some of the cities that I had done engineering work for. And they wanted to know if I would come and do some planning work for them. And the firm I had worked for wanted nothing to do with it. They said, sure, we don't care. So I, I, I started basically my own planning company. And by the time I got done with graduate school, I had hired a couple of my classmates and was working in cities all over Minnesota doing planning work. I remember sitting down and um, I, I got a team of people together, people that I really respected and, and trusted. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm doing this thing. There's a ton of demand. I, I wasn't really expecting this. I was expecting to go to school and then actually get out and go back to the engineering company that I'd been working for just now with a planning degree. So I would kind of know a little bit more because clearly I didn't know enough about planning as an engineer, even though I was doing a lot of it. Uh, that's not how it worked out. And so I found myself, you know, with this planning company, with uh, all kinds of places, more places calling than I knew what to do about. And we sat down and, and I remember one of my friends said, well, what do you, what do you want to accomplish here? And I said, well, I, I want to save rural America. <laughs> and the whole room started laughing. Um, and uh, my friend said, you know, well, why don't you come up with something a, a little bolder, Chuck? <laughs> That's kind of, you know, where we started from. Like I wanted to do planning differently. I wanted to have a, a different kind of planning company, one that would uh, not necessarily be about, you know, just processing things and moving on, but one that would actually teach people and make cities better, make, help cities make better decisions, help them get out in front. Um, I realized again, after time that I was incredibly idealistic. I had these kind of rose colored visions of how things would be. And and I found, you know, I started and I joke about this now uh, with people, um, but this was very much me. You know, when, when I was an engineer, I very much believed at the beginning, especially that if you make the road wide and flat and straight, you're going to save people's lives. You're going to make things better. You're going to make the country stronger. I firmly believe that if we just had the right set of zoning ordinances, and believe me, I wrote some innovative ones, uh, if you could just get the right set of zoning ordinances, um, you could, you know, cure cancer, create world peace. I mean, you, you, you could accomplish great things, right? I mean, you, you could maybe engineer like the second coming if you got the right zoning code. I think this is part of being a planner, right? You, you believe you can make the world right, you know? Um, so I, I went through this and it didn't take me long to run up against the wall again, right? Like, Gosh, I, I'm doing this stuff. Like I'm, I'm. I wrote a great code, but it's not changing things. Um, and again, a, a, a successive series of uh, things were presented to me that just made me realize that my theories and my understanding of the world was was wrong, was just deeply flawed. And even way before the 2008 housing crisis, uh, we were seeing just huge shifts in how buildings were permitted, uh, the demand for certain styles of lots. I mean, at one point I sat down and I showed this one city I worked with, like, look, you're doing new developments. You're actually adding new lots. You're adding new 
properties, you're planning new things. And, and, and you just wrote the most number of permits last year that, that we've ever written in a single year. And if we write the same number of permits every year from now until the end of time, it's going to take you over 100 years to use every lot you've already built, every lot you've already platted, every lot that already has road and, and sewer and water, and you're plowing the street and you're mowing the ditches and there's nothing there. It's going to take us 100 years to use up. Why are you platting a, another lot? This doesn't make sense. And uh, that's when I started to, to grasp that uh, it wasn't about... Uh, building great neighborhoods. It wasn't about the strength of the community. It wasn't about making the place financially healthy. It was about transactions. And it was about this churn, right? Um, I'm not going to claim that I called the housing crisis. I, I called uh, maybe a localized uh, correction. I did not realize how highly correlated the entire country was to the insanity that I was seeing here in Minnesota. Uh, but found out, you know, pretty quickly in 2008 that um, things didn't, you know, th things didn't, th the things that I saw that weren't making sense, weren't making sense e everywhere. And I, I came up with this central kind of question and I, I had some ideas as to the answer, but the central organizing question that I had was why are cities broke? Why are cities going broke. Well, why don't our cities have any money? I was looking around at places and, and largely I was working because these are the places that would hire me. Uh, I was working in fast growing places, places that had a lot of growth, had a lot of stuff going on. Um, I was working in these places that had all this action and they were the brokest ones of all, right? The best ones were the ones that had nothing <laughs> and hadn't had anything for a long time. The, the, the ones that I was working for had no money at all. And I would sit through these meetings and uh, I remember once I, I went up and I, I, they asked me to do this plan for them and I came in with a proposal and it was some ridiculously low dollar amount, um, like, you know, four or $5,000 to do this plan. And they sat and they haggled over the price and they went back and forth and can you do it for 2000? And I'm like, no, can you do it for 3000? No, how about 3500? And they kept like, you know, going back and forth. The engineer then came in like next with a proposal to like extend water and sewer another half mile out of town to nothing. And, uh, you know, the study, not the, not the project, this, the study was like $85,000. I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. And they just like approved it with no haggling or, or any type of thing at all. I'm like, this is crazy. What are we doing? What, what are we doing? This is nuts. And I had, I had some, ideas of what the answer to the question was, but I realized that I was never going to figure them out unless I had kind of a disciplined process to, to go through that. I actually want to write a book about this and, and uh, you know, the answer to this question. And so I sat down and I started to write and I said, three days a week, I'm going to write. And I'm going to write about planning. I'm going to write about engineering. And I'm going to try to explore this question. Uh, I've been reading a lot of book on look books on finance and economics, you know, I had taken economics classes in school, but, you know, theory kind of stuff. Like I took a calc-based econ class. It's a worthless waste of time, actually. A bunch of, a bunch of calculus, you know, added to some esoteric theories. So none of it made any sense. You just learned how to push your way through it. Uh, I, I, de I delved into, I mean, I probably read like 40 books on 
macroeconomics and microeconomics and finance and, and markets and marketplace. I got a, um, this is really insane, but I got a subscription to CNBC. We didn't have cable at home. And at the time it was kind of weird, but you could, you could for like, it was ridiculous price. It was like 40 or 50 bucks a month. <laughs> you, you could get a streaming uh, subscription to stream CNBC through the internet. And I had that on the office every day, all the time in my office. Like I'd shut my door and just turn it on and I have it on. Not because I really wanted to watch CNBC, um, but I wanted to understand the language as they would talk about swaps and derivatives and, and uh, you know, interest rates and how interest rates affect bond prices and yields. Every time they came across a term, I didn't know. I'm like, I wrote it down. I figured it out. Like, what are they talking about? And I wanted to be able to sit there and watch CNBC and have it on and understand everything they were talking about. Like I did not want, I realized that CNBC was kind of like the pop culture of finance. Um, but I figured like if, if I didn't get, if I couldn't get that, I wasn't going to get any of it. Right. I wasn't going to be, I needed to understand their language, their lingo. And so I did, I did like two, it was probably a year and a half, two years. I had a subscription and I sat and listened to it all. The, I just had it on as background noise. And if something came out, I didn't get, I would try to figure it out. Um, so I started writing. And my writing turned into Strong Towns, the Strong Towns blog. Uh, I, I've talked about this before, but how some friends of mine encouraged me to start a nonprofit. They actually set it up for me. A good friend named John Commerce and Ben Olson uh, paid the fee and got it all going. Uh, I just kept writing. And uh, eventually uh, a foundation stepped forward and gave me a grant and encouraged me to, um, to leave the planning firm that I had started. And to go off and, and share this message. At that point, uh, I had identified the, the problem I was trying to solve. And I, I think more clarity has come into focus. And I'm going to talk about that in a second. But I, the central organizing problem that I, I came to grasp and understand was not an engineering problem. Like I started out believing it was not a a planning problem. It was not even a finance problem, really. The problem is that we, we just have a bad business model. Um, we have a, cities have a bad business model. And if you look at, and, and I've, I try to draw this demarcation line in the uh, curbside chat presentation. If you look at the thousands of years of human history of building cities, um, we kind of had like a business model for how to do it. Um, the traditional development pattern, the traditional development pattern has a certain incremental approach to it, a certain, um, you know, mechanism uh, for building uh, that ties in the underlying economics of the land uh, with the overall wealth creation of the place, uh, with the ability to grow incrementally and resiliently. There's a, a certain anti-fragile nature to this development pattern. Um, Nassim Taleb's work helped me really see and understand this. And I realized that when we get to the 20th century, particularly as we go through the Depression and World War II, and we begin this huge experiment, this new way to build cities uh, around auto-oriented suburbs and commuting and parking and you know build things all at once to a finished state, turn our back on the incremental, uh, when we centralize uh, finance and we centralize our regulations and we centralize our approach and we really become very top down in what we do, 
we create, in a sense, an entirely new business model, an entirely new way to run a government. And the way uh, we do it now, contrasting with the way we did it before, uh, the way we did it before was incremental over time, very resilient, very anti-fragile, very productive financially. The way we do things now is based on growth. It's based on transactions. It's based on uh, the cash that you need next quarter, next year. I, I think probably the best analogy is to think about banking. Um, it's probably the easiest one to, to grasp. Your, your local bank, uh, you know, two generations ago, used to make their money off of loaning, you know, you, you would make a deposit, uh, they would loan that out, and they would collect interest on it. Uh, it's the 363 principle. You uh, borrow money at 3%, you loan it out at 6%, and you get out on the golf course by 3 p.m. Uh, the 363 principle, that's banking. It's boring, uh, but it's stable. And it, it it pays predictable returns. And, you know, this is a business model that has worked for millennia, really. Um, that's the that's the business model. And it, it, it made you as a banker essentially vested or tied into the community in a really kind of intimate way, right? You were, as a bank, and as depositors of the bank and as the ownership of the bank, you essentially owned the community, right? You, you physically owned the properties. You owned the houses. You owned the land. You owned the businesses. Now, you, you were co-owners. There was, some, there was some equity that someone else had. You, hold, you held the note. Um, but basically, you were vested in the success of this entire community. You look at the local banks today, and what are they? They're basically like feeder, uh, you know, they, they'll still do loans, right? You can still go get an auto loan from a local bank sometimes. Um, you can go get a loan for a RV or a, um, maybe not an RV. I don't know. Uh, I have not, I have not bought an RV, but I'm trying to think like around here, I see people get ATVs and snowmobiles. They go get loans. Um, you know, you, the banks will do like gap financing. So you need a home equity loan. They like doing those, uh, commercial business needs, uh, a gap finance kind of loan. So, you know, you need a little bit of extra money to, to buy that commercial real estate. They'll do those kind of gap financing. But for the most part, one of the most lucrative things that local banks do now is just originate loans. Uh, they put together and package loans that meet the secondary market criteria, and then they ship those off to Wall Street, where they're bundled together, securitized, and sold off on to, uh, you know, off as securities. This is the mortgage-backed securities that was part of the... Uh, Part of the 2008 bubble and, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the toxic ones, the ones based on subprime loans, uh, that went so bad, essentially our local banks have become, you know, feeder institutions for that and they make their money and it's a lot easier money to make in many ways. They make their money on the transactions, right? You look at our cities today and our cities have a bad business model. Our cities do not, um, the success of the local government is not correlated with the success of people in the population. As the wealth of the community grows, it, it's not necessarily uh, going to equal the wealth and prosperity of the city government, right? The city government, and, and I'm, I'm drawing a distinction here, even though 
I have insisted that a city is a collection of us. The actual uh, running of the city is completely at odds with what is best for the families and the businesses long-term in the community. It's become about transactions. It's not about building wealth. It's about transactions. So the problem we're trying to solve, the problem that uh, gives us all this urgency is that our cities are insolvent because they have a bad business model. And we actually have to change this underlying business model. I said there was a lot of hubris involved. When you start to grasp that that's the problem, right? What do you do? What do you do? I mean, that, that's, that's not an easy problem to solve. I, I, I've said, if you've been listening to the podcast the last year, you've heard me talk a lot about psychology and a lot about sociology. And I've even gone in and, and been reading books about, uh, you know, just all the cognitive biases we have as, as human beings, uh, the things that we're wired to do uh, from, you know, prehistoric evolutionary times uh, that, you know, now are being applied to, to just our day-to-day interactions. What we're trying to solve here is essentially a cultural problem, right? It's not an engineering problem. It's not a planning problem. It's not a, it's not a problem where, you know, we can do a bunch of studies and show people like, look, your development pattern's a Ponzi scheme. Why don't you change and do something else? No, these are deep, deep, deep cultural problems. We have to actually change the culture. That is a hard problem. That's a really, really hard problem to deal with. We have to change the way we talk about our cities. We have to change the way we converse about growth and development. And we have to change the way we think about our places. That's a tough conversation. And that's what we're trying to do here. That's the problem we're trying to tackle. It's, and I love the complete streets people. It's just easy to pick on them because, you know, narrow problem, narrow solution, right? Um, ours is not a narrow problem. Ours is this huge, complex, intertwined, interwoven problem. Tomorrow, I want to talk a little bit about how we're trying to solve this. And uh, I, I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about how we're trying to create room for people who are reformers. I'm just trying to explain how we're trying to create demand for a different approach. And I'm going to use the word uh, virus when I talk about this, because what we, what we have set out to do is essentially create uh, an intellectual virus, right? A, A different way of thinking about and looking at and questioning the places we live in um, as a way to kind of move us to something else, to, to attack this huge, complex, interwoven, difficult problem. That's tomorrow. Before we do that, I need you to do me a favor, though. Uh, don't hold out on me. Don't wait till the last day. You break my heart. I'm, I'm sitting here, uh, all this anxiety, <laughs> member drive is such a uh, uh, like gut-wrenching kind of thing to go through. Um, don't make me sit here and go through this gut-wrenching. You're listening to this podcast. You care about Strong Towns. You want to see us attack this problem. Go to strongtowns.org. Click on Join the Movement. Sign up. Become a member. Uh, you know, it, it, If you're listening out there, we're talking five bucks a month. 
we're talking 25 bucks a year. Um, go and, and join. Just be part of be part of what we got going on. We'd love to have you. And uh, if you do that, you know what you're going to do? You're going to help make the Strong Towns movement a lot stronger. If what I am is what's in me, then I'll stay strong, that's who I'll be. And I will always be the best me that I can be. There's only one me, I admit. Have a dream, I'll follow it. It's up to me to try. Oh, I'ma keep my head up high. Keep on reaching high. Never gonna quit, I'll keep it stronger. And nothing's gonna bring me down. Never gonna stop, gotta go. Because I know I'll keep it stronger.